long-term capital management, a bond trading firm, was on the brink of failing. The fund was run by John W. Merriweather, formerly a well-known trader at Solomon Brothers. Merriweather, a congenial though cautious Midwesterner, had been popular among the bankers. It was because of him, mainly, that the bankers had agreed to give financing to long-term and had agreed on highly generous terms. But Merriweather was only the public face of long-term. The heart of the fund was a group of brainy, PhD-certified arbitragers. Many of them had been professors. Two had won the Nobel Prize. All of them were very smart. And they knew they were very smart. For four years, long-term had been the envy of Wall Street. The fund had racked up returns of more than 40% a year with no losing stretches, no volatility, seemingly no risk at all. Its intellectual supermen had apparently been able to reduce an uncertain world to rigorous, cold-blooded odds. On form, they were the very best that modern finance had to offer. This one obscure arbitrage fund had amassed an amazing $100 billion in assets, virtually all of it borrowed. As monstrous as this indebtedness was, it was by no means the worst of long-term problems. The fund had entered into thousands of derivative contracts, which had endlessly intertwined it with every bank on Wall Street. These contracts, essentially side bets on market prices, covered an astronomical sum, more than $1 trillion worth of exposure. If long-term defaulted, all of the banks in the room would be left holding one side of a contract for which the other side no longer existed. In other words, they would be exposed to tremendous and untenable risk. That is from Roger Lowenstein's wonderful book, When Genius Failed. I consider this one of my favorite books in the category that we cover, What Not to Do. What are the types of companies and examples that we actively want to avoid and do the opposite of? As Charlie Munger likes to say, where can we invert? And certainly, the story of long-term capital management is one with many lessons that I think we could invert. It is one that started about 30 years ago, roughly 30 years ago, when long-term capital management first founded as an arbitrage fund. And within the first four years of their fund, they were some of the hottest investors on Wall Street. They had taken $1 and 4 x it in only the span of four years. So basically, multiplying your money every year, but only six months later, in 1998, is when the fund crashed and burned. It's almost the 25-year anniversary of long-term capital management's downfall, so I thought it would be a great time to review some of the biggest lessons from that period. And many of these lessons are about excessive leverage, being over-levered, massive tail risks, kind of ignoring the big black swan events that could affect any of us, and true overconfidence. Too much hubris in the investors, these smart P 
PhD genius candidates that were running the firm. So this is an insightful journey on what not to do, and I can't wait to jump right into when genius failed. Pressed by his young traders who simply wouldn't give up, in 1989, Meriwether persuaded Goodfriend to adopt a formula under which his arbitrageurs would get paid a fixed 15% share of the group's profits. So this book actually picks up really well from our last episode, from Liar's Poker, because Liar's Poker ended in roughly the 1989 period at Solomon Brothers, and now this is starting at that 1989 period at Solomon Brothers. So John Merriweather, he was one of the head guys at Solomon Brothers at the time, and we see from this last quote, he had gotten approved for his group a 15% profit share on their trades. This was a big issue for Solomon Brothers. It's a big reason why they lost a lot of their mortgage desk. They weren't willing to give that skin in the game. So John Merriweather, he was able to break that trend within Solomon Brothers and get his group a 15% share of the profits. But the effect that had on the rest of Solomon Brothers was that everyone else started to be pissed off. All the other traders were thinking, well, we've been working for years asking for a share of the profits, some skin in the game, and now these guys are getting it, but we're not. So this is what set off, I mentioned a few times in the last episode, this is what set off the big scandal in 1991 that really marked the downfall of Solomon Brothers. And it started with a trader named Paul Moser. In 1991, a year after the storm over Hillebrand's pay, Moser went to Meriwether and made a startling confession. He had submitted a false bid to the U.S. Treasury to gain an unauthorized share of a government bond auction. Meriwether took the matter to Goodfriend. The pair, along with two other top executives, agreed that the matter was serious, but they somehow did nothing about it. A few months later, in August, Solomon discovered that Moser's confession to Meriwether had itself been a lie, for he had committed numerous other infractions too. Though now Solomon did report the matter, the Treasury and Fed were furious. The scandal set off an uproar, seemingly out of proportion to the modest wrongdoing that had inspired it. No matter, one simply did not, could not, deceive the U.S. Treasury. Good friend, a lion of Wall Street, was forced to quit. So in essence, this was the scandal that changed the fortunes at Solomon Brothers. A trader, his name was Paul Moser, he had submitted too many bids for government bonds, U.S. Treasury bonds, and I guess at the time, that's how you're distributed, but each bank gets a certain number of shares. If you get an over-allotment, then you hold more control over the supply, so naturally, they had to stop that from happening. And Solomon, illegally, had gotten a larger allotment 
than what is actually allowed to them, what is agreed to them. And at first, Meriwether learned about this from Moser. He thought, oh, we just got a little bit more of an allotment. We don't have to do anything about it. But over time, they realized that Moser had even lied about that confession. So he even bought more of an allotment than they had initially estimated. And with time, by 1991, that is when the U.S. government found out. Solomon, Meriwether, and Goodfriend had to go to the government and admit their wrongdoing. And part of this was when Buffett, as the big savior early on and a a big shareholder in the company, Buffett had to come and take over Solomon Brothers as CEO. He came, he took over for, I think it was a nine or 10 month period, trying to right the ship, get the right incentives in place, many of those misaligned incentives that we discussed last episode. And while he was interim CEO, one of his first orders of business was getting Meriwether to walk away as well. Now Meriwether was forced to resign, and this is what led to the start of long-term capital management. So Meriwether is walking away. Just a few years later, he's thinking, what's my next move going to be? I was one of the best traders, one of the best people in Wall Street, the investment world. So what should I do next? I have a loyal group of people who are willing to follow me. What's the next step? And for him, the next step was long-term capital management. What Meriwether lacked, he must have sensed, was an edge. His solution was deceptively simple. Why not hire traders who were smarter? Traders who would treat markets as an intellectual discipline as opposed to the folkloric, unscientific Neanderthals who traded from their bellies. Most Wall Street executives were mystified by the academic world, but Meriwether, a math teacher with an MBA from Chicago, was comfortable with it. That would be his edge. So there's certainly going to be some parts of long-term capital management's rise that are commendable, and I think this is chief amongst them. We've obviously talked about finding great people, people who are better than you, talent acquisition, and finding an edge in the investment world. And this was an early goal for John Merriweather. He was not simply saying, let me just find anyone who trades based on their gut instinct, but he was willing to lean into the world, the academic world, where no one else had gone before. He would go out to top colleges like MIT, Harvard, and recruit some of the smartest PhDs in those divisions to carry out his new strategy. Meriwether had taken it upon himself to set up a sort of underground railroad that ran from the finest graduate finance and math programs directly onto the Solomon trading floor. Robert Merton, the economist who himself would later become a consultant to Solomon Brothers and later still a partner at Long-Term Capital, complained that Meriwether was stealing an entire generation of academic talent. So Meriwether was going out and establishing his investment edge by getting the smartest people in the world, getting these smart PhD people, like they've said, Lowenstein has said, setting up an underground railroad, directly sending the best talent to his firm, stealing an entire generation of academic talent. Now, the big 
problem, I guess the what not to do lesson behind this whole talent mentality is that they had a core belief internally that all of these PhDs and all this talent that he was acquiring, they all thought of themselves as geniuses. They thought that they could never be wrong. They had this very high levels of overconfidence and hubris. And we're going to see this is going to play out much more over the course of the next four or five years that we discuss. Obviously, it's not really going to show out right now as they're successful in the early days of the firm. But I think there's a lot of power to going out and acquiring great, talented people. We want to surround ourselves with people who are better than us. But certainly, once that internal mentality, that internal voice starts telling yourself, I'm a genius, I'm always right, I could never be corrected, no one else is smarter than me, that's when it starts to get dangerous. Essentially, two factors dictate a bond's price. One can be gleaned from the coupon on the bond itself. If you lend money at 10% today, you would pay a premium for a bond that yielded 12%. The other factor is the risk of default. The riskier the bond, the wider the spread. That is, the greater the difference between the yield on it and the yield on virtually risk-free treasuries. Generally, though not always, the spread also increases with time. That is, investors demand a slightly higher yield on a two-year note than on a 30-day bill, because the uncertainty is greater. He often bet that a spread, say between a futures contract and the underlying bond, or between two bonds, would converge. If he had the capital to stay the course, he'd be rewarded in the long run, or so his experience seemed to prove. Eventually, spreads always came in. So at a very high level, That describes the investment philosophy of long-term capital management. Essentially, they were betting on convergence of spreads, whether it's between two bonds like the U.S. Treasury risk-free bond and a later dated bond or a futures contract, whatever it may be. They were betting on convergence on these spreads to lower over time, and they were betting on really efficient markets. They were betting on efficient markets because over time, if the market becomes more efficient, that means people feel less of this risk delta between those two bonds. And that means with time, the spreads would go down as well. The spreads would converge. So this was their essential thesis behind their investments. They believed spreads between riskier and less risky bonds would tend to narrow. This followed logically because spreads reflect, in part, the uncertainty that is attached to chancier assets. This is that efficient market aspect. The uncertainty that is attached to chancier assets. Over time, if markets did become more efficient, such riskier bonds would be less volatile and therefore more certain-seeming. And so, the premium demanded by investors would tend to shrink. So they had their team of PhDs and genius investors surrounded, believing that over time, markets are going to get 
more efficient. Spreads are going to go lower. They're going to converge, basically. Risky assets will look less risky as the market is more efficient. And that is how we're going to be paid. We're going to be paid for taking this risk of buying the quote-unquote riskier assets with a small premium and selling the risk-free assets like the U.S. Treasury. And that's how you're able to play this arbitrage game between the spreads getting lower over time. Now, we're, we're starting to see how some of the hubris can come up for the PhD investors because they believe so deeply in this efficient market hypothesis. Backed by their models, they felt more certain than others did, almost invincible. Given enough time, given enough capital, the young geniuses from academia felt they could do no wrong. And Meriwether, who regularly journeyed to academic conferences to recruit such talent, began to believe that the geniuses were right. So the long-term team is now developing a core thesis around efficient markets and convergence. They believe deeply in their models, even to the point that now they're basically not even willing to listen to anyone around them. And they're reaching their hand out, being willing to take the risk of the slightly riskier securities, betting that over time, that spread will go down. People will see less risk with a more efficient market. And Lowenstein talks about how in many cases, this could work out for them. You're getting a small premium for taking a riskier asset. Oftentimes, spreads do narrow over time. It's not like the core thesis was wrong. The real trouble with it was that the long-term team practically put a gun to their head. And that gun was leverage. But there was a different lesson, equally valuable, that Meriwether might have drawn from the Eckstein business had his success not come so fast. While a losing trade may well turn around eventually, the turn could arrive too late to do the trader any good, meaning, of course, that he might go broke in the interim. So I mentioned leverage as the gun to their head. Why is that? We've spoken about the quote before, markets can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. This is a core thesis that Ed Thorpe believes in and Keynes eventually spoke about. And this is something that long-term capital will have to face later on as they take on excessive, excessive amounts of leverage. The reason they had to take on so much debt was because these spreads, the trades that they were making, offered very small returns. If you're using solely equity, the difference in a spread could be like 10 basis points or 12 basis points, 20 basis points. One basis point is 0.01%. So that means their return on these trades is less than 1%. And the way that you're able to juice those returns is that you apply a lot of leverage. You take on all that debt, you lever your capital 20 or 30 times, and that is how you're able to get much higher returns like 20% returns and 30% returns. Meriwether planned from the very start that long-term would leverage his capital 20 to 30 times or even more. This 
was a necessary part of long-term strategy because the gaps between the bonds it intended to buy and those it intended to sell were most often minuscule. To make a decent profit on such tiny spreads, those small 10-20 BIP spreads, long-term would have to multiply its bet many, many times by borrowing. When I read this, I just think, how many times have we seen these huge blowups because of extreme leverage? It is one of the most common themes amongst the blow-up stories, especially in real estate. Already, two of the books that we've studied, both Zeckendorf and The Liar's Ball regarding Harry Macklow, both of those saw excessive amounts of leverage and then a blow-up. The next episode that I'm going to record, The Big Short, Great Financial Crisis, that involved a ton of leverage with the residential sector. And we've also seen in the Great Depression, that was when homes and even the stock market were being levered 90 plus percent. So this is just something that we see repeated again and again. Whenever there's this extreme leverage, in long term's case, it's 20 to 30 times leverage. This is a bad warning sign for things to come. It will just take a small event or a black swan event, anything that's unexpected that with your high amounts of debt, high amounts of leverage, it could completely tip you over. As Keynes likes to say, the market can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. If you aren't in debt, you can't go broke and can't be made to sell, in which case liquidity is irrelevant. But a leveraged firm may be forced to sell lest fast accumulating losses put it out of business. Leverage always gives rise to the same brutal dynamic, and its dangers cannot be stressed too often. So now Merriweather had his team of geniuses in place, and he had a core idea of their investment thesis, so he was ready to start raising money. He wanted to raise a $2.5 billion fund, certainly a massive fund for the time 30 years ago, and they were going to be quite aggressive with their pricing as well. The hedge fund industry is known for charging oftentimes in the 2 in 20 range, 2% management fees in 20% of profits. Well, Merriweather, he was ready to charge 2 in 25, take 25% of profits because he felt like his strategy was something that no one else would be able to emulate. And this was a strategy that, as we've discussed so far, can sound very complex. It's something that the models predicted by PhD investment candidates and financial experts are creating. This, in some ways, may be confusing for LPs, for the limited partners who would be investing in the funds. Now, a lot of them, I notice, weren't really thinking about that so much because there's a natural allure to want to invest in hedge funds. Lowenstein would say, for people of means, for people who summered in the Hamptons and decorated their homes with warhols, for patrons of the arts and charity dinners, investing in a hedge fund denoted a certain status, an inclusion 
among Wall Street's smartest and savviest. So we definitely saw a little bit of a buildup of FOMO mentality investing in this hedge fund. It was created by John Merriweather, one of the formerly great traders at Solomon Brothers, and it was filled with a team of quote-unquote genius PhD finance experts. So naturally, many people wanted to be included in this hedge funds round. They saw this as a premier opportunity, exclusive access to an investment vehicle that many of their peers may not have access to, even though they may not have actually understood the underlying investment thesis. The fact was they had made a ton of money at Solomon and investors warmed to the idea that they could do it again. In the face of such intellectual brilliance, investors, having little understanding of how Meriwether's gang actually operated, this is an incredibly important sentence in this passage, having little understanding of how Meriwether's gang actually operated, gradually forgot that they were taking a leap of faith. So this is another recurring theme that we see again and again during bubbles. We see that the first crop of investors will oftentimes know an asset well. They will know and understand the underlying value of that asset. But the later groups who invest, the final groups who invest, are oftentimes more driven by FOMO. They're driven by the fear of missing out. They don't feel the need to understand the core business or the investment philosophy. Like in this case, they have little understanding of how Meriwether's gang actually operated because many people were kind of being driven by FOMO. There was this exclusive hedge fund built up with a ton of legitimacy. Some of the smartest and best financial people in the world were forming it. So they felt a need to invest without fully understanding what they were investing in. And this reminds me of one of my favorite Ed Thorpe quotes. He says, be aware that information flows down a food chain with those who get it first eat and those who get it late being eaten. So this is simply a stark warning to you and me when we see the people around us, the masses, investing out of FOMO and having little understanding of what we're investing in, this is when we may want to be careful that we are entering some of that bubble territory. So by this point in the story, in 1994, long-term capital management has raised its fund. And they ended up raising $1.25 billion, so short of their $2.5 billion goal, but still it was a huge fund for the time. A lot of this had to do with the people that they were able to recruit, the genius PhDs, and in addition to that, bringing a lot of legitimacy to the team by recruiting Myron Scholes of the Black Scholes option pricing model and David Mullins, who was vice chairman of the U.S. Federal Reserve. So he was literally second in command to Alan Greenspan. So they had built up this incredibly talented team. It was a big reason why they were able to raise their $1.25 billion 
as a new startup fund. And now they were ready to start investing. And I wanted to dive into a little bit deeper one of their core trades. We discussed it a little bit earlier, the convergence between two bonds. But I want to touch on it further because I think it will help us both understand that to understand later when they ended up blowing up, how that really happened. So to give a simple example, Long Term was trying to buy the illiquid securities and they were betting on the spreads converging. So the way that they did that was that they would look for a less desirable security, let's say with a risk-free rate, the most desirable security is a 30-year U.S. Treasury. Let's say this is the desirable security that they're looking at. They would compare that to a less desirable security. So a less desirable security may be a 29 and a half year U.S. Treasury. So this was a U.S. Treasury that was a 30 year issued six months ago. And now a little bit of it has passed. And since it's not the newest security, it is actually less liquid. It is not traded as frequently. And with that difference in liquidity comes a liquidity premium. So oftentimes, long term, if they go out and they buy the 29 and a half year US Treasury, they're able to get a slightly higher yield than the 30 year, the risk free US Treasury. So they're buying these 29 and a half year US Treasuries and they're collecting a very small fee. They're getting like a 12 BIP fee. Again, that's 0.12%. So they're taking this small fee. As we know, they're applying a lot of leverage to that, 30 times leverage practically. So their true return will end up being much higher, but their spread is actually very minuscule. It's only 12 BIPs, right? So I'm actually going to take a few passages from a separate article to the book. It is called How the Eggheads Cracked by Michael Lewis himself. He needed to have a follow-on after Liar's Poker. And I think he describes really well why long-term was making these trades and how the excessive leverage can turn out to hurt them over time. The young professors were not the first to see that the two bonds were nearly identical, but they were the first to have studied so meticulously the relationship between them. Newly issued treasury bonds change hands more frequently than older ones. They acquire what is called a liquidity premium, which is to say that the professional bond traders pay a bit more for them because they are a bit easier to resell. In the panic, the premium on the 30-year bond became grotesquely large and the young professors, or at any rate their computers, noticed. They laid a bet that the premium would shrink when the panic subsided. So Michael Lewis is describing that the 30-year U.S. Treasuries have a certain liquidity premium since they're the newer issued bonds. More people are trading them. They're more liquid. They actually have a slightly lower return than, let's say in this example, the 29 and a half year U.S. Treasury bonds. So that slight difference This was the thing that long-term capital management was betting on to converge over time. They're betting on efficient markets and applying their leverage to get juiced up returns. And you can understand that 
These two bonds, like Lewis said, they were nearly identical. He goes even further to describe how similar these two bonds are. He says, One way to understand this and to see how bizarre was the panic of August 1998 is to imagine a world with two kinds of dollars, blue dollars and red dollars. The blue dollar and the red dollar are both worth a dollar, but you can't spend them for five years. In five years, you could turn them both in for green dollars. But all sorts of reasons, a mania for blue, a nasty article about red, the blue dollar becomes more expensive than the red dollar. The blue dollar is selling for a dollar five cents, and the red dollar is selling for 95 cents. So practically in this example, the 30-year U.S. Treasury, the very liquid U.S. Treasury, is the blue dollar, and the 29-and-a-half-year illiquid U.S. Treasury is the red dollar. And what long-term capital management were doing was that they were betting that these two dollars will converge over time. You're able to clearly see and look at them and say, well, in five years, these bonds are traded for the same amounts of dollars. They're both going to be traded for the green dollar. They have the same value. So they're betting, again, on that convergence. That is the core assumption of their investment philosophy. Now, the problem we know with so much leverage, 30 times excessive leverage, any financial crisis can topple them over. But until that event happens, until that black swan or fat tail event actually occurs, well, long-term capital management is going to be raking in the money. They've levered and juiced up their returns. They have this fairly stable convergence thesis playing out. And we're starting to see over the next four years from 1994 to 1998, they are going to kill it. Long-term preferred to reap a sure nickel than to gamble on making an uncertain dollar because it can leverage its tiny margins like a high-volume grocer, sucking up nickel after nickel and multiplying the process thousands of times. Of course, not even a nickel bet was absolutely sure. And as Steinhardt, the fund manager, had recently been reminded, the penalty for being wrong is infinitely greater when you are leveraged. But in 1994, long-term was almost never wrong. In fact, nearly every trade it touched turned to gold. So over the next four years, long-term was just flying high. They were growing in confidence. They already had a lot of that overconfidence and hubris, but they continued to think that they could do no wrong. 1994, 1995, 1996, their returns are out of the park. It's like 40% plus almost every year. And everyone's looking at them and thinking, how are they so successful? They're getting great lending terms from banks on these margin loans. You're taking on so much leverage. So obviously your financing becomes important. So they're getting great financing from banks and they're just simply killing it in the investment world. We saw that by 1996, they had earned $1.6 billion on their $1.25 billion fund. So yes, they're taking on a lot of leverage, almost 30 times leverage, but they were doing so well 
because no fat tail big event had really reared its head yet. And this is where we start to see that hubris grow to extraordinary levels. People within the firm would say, do you know why we make so much money? It's because we're smarter. They simply think that they're on top of the world and they're just tuning out anyone around them saying, you're maybe over-levered or you may not be thinking about the tail risk scenarios. Well, with such great returns for their first three, four years of the fund, by 1997, they have really proven out their investment thesis, this buying illiquid securities and betting on convergence thesis. So by that period, that's when they started to see new competition in the field. Whether long-term wanted to admit it or not, the secret of bond arbitrage was out. By the late 1990s, almost every investment bank on Wall Street had, to some degree, gotten into the game. Now, with all these other banks competing for the same bond arbitrage trades, that makes it much harder to deploy their huge bases of capital. They have lower margins, lower profits expected with more competition, and thus they start to look at new avenues for investment. In late summer, the fund received a bit of bad news. The MCI merger was renegotiated at a lower price. MCI's stock price collapsed and long-term lost $150 million overnight, the first sign that it had been fishing in dangerous waters. As Lowenstein said, this was the first mistake that long-term made that we actually see realized. They had to leave their core investment philosophy area, the bond arbitrage market, because they were facing too much competition, and now they were entering an investment arena where they had much less experience in. They were entering the equities and merger arbitrage business that they simply didn't have some type of differentiated thesis on like they did originally with bond arbitrage. And because of that reason, because they felt a little less confidence with this new area that they're starting to invest more and more capital into, they decided that maybe it's time to return some of the capital to their original LPs. So at this point in 1998, they are returning some of their original capital, but the long-term partners themselves, they're keeping their own personal money in the fund. Michael Lewis would say in his article that they had invested at that point about $1.9 billion of their own money in the fund, and they actually weren't lowering the amount of assets that they would have in the fund. So if they're returning capital, they're returning equity, and they're keeping their own personal capital in the fund, but the same number of assets, that practically means that long-term was trading equity for more leverage. Returning capital only reduced the equity supporting its assets, which weren't, in fact, shrinking at all. Indeed, at a time when opportunities were drying up, and the portfolio was bloated with 7,600 positions, the fund was defiantly and ill-advisedly leveraging itself further. 
like an Icarus chasing the sun. So now they're applying even more leverage. They have less equity in the system. It's their own personal stakes even, and they're applying even more leverage. I think at certain points during this time period, like 1998 time period, they were above 30 times levered. And to put that in a percentage term, that means if you have 100% assets and your leverage is like 96, 97%, that means just a three, four, 5% drop on your asset. Let's say you own a stock like Apple and Apple drops just 5%. If you're levered that much, your equity is practically worthless. So that is the big risk, like the tail event risk that I keep bringing up with so much leverage, excessive leverage. The big risk was that any type of small drop in their assets could lead to a huge loss in value for their equity. But at the time, many of their top traders, they had just gone through the past four years of everything they touched turning out like gold. So they just felt like they could do no wrong. They had that ultimate hubris mentality. They never heard the word no. Now, other people outside the firm, they were kind of ringing the alarm bells. They were saying that, listen, this firm has huge tail risk potential. With so much leverage, they have huge tail risk. One of the most prominent amongst which was Seth Klarman. Klarman feared that investors were turning a blind eye to the consequences of outlier events, such as the sudden disturbances and occasional crashes that historically have always upset the best laid plans of investors. In general, Klarman warned, successful investors have positioned themselves to avoid the 100-year flood. Increasingly, that way of thinking has become pass. Turning to the former Solomon Traders Fund, that is, to long-term, Klarman noted that, given its projected leverage, even a single serious mistake would put a major dent in the fund's capital. Two major errors at the same time, of course, would be catastrophic. So Seth Klarman is emphasizing the point that we just made. It is that any type of sharp drop in the asset prices, a single serious mistake, or even worse, two major errors at the same time, with their high levels of leverage, would lead to catastrophic results for the firm. And the issue is that these tail events, these rare occurrences, they happen actually more often than we think. He talks about how these tail events that people often look at and say, it was the first time ever this happened, like Black Monday. That was when the market dropped 23% in a single day. It was the first time ever this happened. Well, first time ever events happen more often than we think. So in this example, the traders who were betting with so much precision on historical numbers that a big drop like that will never happen again, their models, they were predicting that this is impossible. Basically, huge tail events are never going to wipe out the entire fund in one day. Well, when their leverage got so high and any tail event could come and knock them over, that is when the risk really became catastrophic. When we see fat tail events like Black Monday, these are the types of tail events 
that go directly against the efficient market hypothesis. The most obvious example was Black Monday, when on no apparent news, the market plunged 23%. Economists later figured that, on the basis of the market's historic volatility, had the market been open every day since the creation of the universe, the odds would still have been against its falling that much on any single day. In fact, had the life of the universe been repeated one billion times, such a crash would still have been theoretically unlikely. But it happened anyway. So we see these fat tail events, they are impossible to predict, but they do end up happening. These first time events do end up happening. This goes directly against the efficient market hypothesis, what long-term capital management really believed in, which is assuming that people are perfectly rational. Volatility will reduce over time. Spreads will reduce over time. People are going to be rational. Well, in a non-efficient market, when fear starts popping up and people get afraid of the future outcomes, how their stocks may respond to a crisis, when people, real people, not robot investors, are operating portfolios, that is where we see psychology and herd behavior come into play. That's when we see panics and it leads to more selling and then forced selling because of margin loans and thus everyone kind of follows each other. We all follow the masses. So this type of efficient market hypothesis, it goes directly against the fat tail risk that long-term capital was always exposed to. Early in 1998, long-term began to short large amounts of equity volatility. It is based on the assumption that the volatility of stocks is, over time, consistent. The stock market, for instance, typically varies by about 15 to 20% a year. Now and then, the market might be more volatile, but it will always revert to form, or so the mathematicians in Greenwich believed. They are betting on precision in a tail-event-driven world, a non-efficient market world. The partners believe that over time, investors would become more rational, more steady, more efficient, more like they were, and thus that credit spreads would narrow. As we've seen before, fear causes the exact opposite to happen during panics. So I think we're now ready to discuss the tail event that sent long-term capital management down its nosedive, and that was the Russian ruble crisis. In this late 1998 period, roughly summer to early fall of 1998, that is when investors started initially having fears that the Russian ruble would face a devaluation. And the initial reaction to these fears was that many investors started a flight to quality, which means they sought out the types of bonds that were not nearly as risky as foreign emerging markets like the Russian ruble or the Japanese yen. They instead went and bought the simple US treasuries, 
which were the U.S. treasuries that long-term capital management was actively shorting. Treasuries were the basic bond that the fund sold short to hedge the riskier bonds it owned. And as treasuries rallied, spreads between them and other bonds widened. Mortgage-backed securities jumped from 96 basis points over treasuries to 113 points. Corporate bonds rose from 99 to 105, and junk issues rose from 224 to 226. Even those safe-seeming, off-the-run treasuries, those are the 29.5 versus 30-year treasuries, climbed from 6 points over to 8 points over. In every market, the premium demanded for riskier bonds increased. In every market, long-term was losing money. So these types of moves may seem small to you, with basis points going from 99 to 105 or 96 to 113, 6 to 8. But like I've said before, even a small move with long terms 30 to 1 leverage, that small move could be still seismic on their accounts. It could be seismic, have a catastrophic impact on their results. So now long term suddenly was losing money very quickly. And that was even further accelerated because Solomon Brothers, still one of the biggest banks at the time, especially in the bond arbitrage trading business, they decided to sell their entire portfolio. They had really big fears, again, not rational thinking, not efficient market thinking. They had large fears that the rest of the market is going to continue tanking and people are going to sell more and more of their assets, meaning the assets are going to lose more and more of their value. So Solomon wanted to let go of their entire portfolio before those prices dump even further. Naturally, traders at diverse firms began to unload interest rate swaps as well as other arbitrage trades for fear of being trampled by Solomon's steamroller. The long-term partners badly underestimated the seriousness of the second biggest player in their business, calling it quits. So the impact of Solomon Brothers deciding to get out of the bond arbitrage trading business was that many of the other banks wanted to even beat them to it. So now suddenly, at the same time, there's this Russian ruble potential crisis. It is not a devaluation yet, but there's real fears that the Russian ruble will be devalued. And thus, all these other banks around are starting to sell off their portfolio. And that is forcing those spreads to widen instead of converging, they're diverging. And now long-term with their great leverage is facing huge losses. Instead of trying to be more risk averse during this time, the long-term traders actively leaned in to this Russian risk. Now, while the entire world was watching Russia, while its finances were in shambles and its government on hold, Hagani and a researcher named Eamon Hindi bought more Russian bonds as though they had the inside scoop on that enigmatic Eastern riddle. Neither the Nobel Prize nor all the degrees mattered now. 
the professors were rolling the dice. According to one trader at long term, the fund went outright long in Russia, right at the end. So this final trade will definitely not go in their favor. On Monday, August 17th, Russia declared a debt moratorium. The government simply decided it would rather use its rubles to pay Russian workers than Western bondholders, nor would it attempt to maintain the value of those rubles in foreign markets. In short, it was a devaluation. So this was the tail event that long-term capital management never anticipated. The Russian ruble went through a devaluation and that caused a shock to ripple through the rest of the markets. Over the next few days, many investors were sparked by fear and panic and they started selling all of those quote-unquote riskier bonds in the emerging markets. These are the types of bonds that long-term would bet on and that they were betting the spreads would converge over time. So naturally, people were starting to go towards that flight to quality. They wanted to stick to the safest or least risky, like US 10-year treasury or 30-year treasuries. And that meant all the other spreads that long-term actually owned were now shooting up. This was burning a deep hole in long-term's pocket. Krasker couldn't believe it. He sought out Matt Zames, a trader, and Mike Reisman, the firm's repo man, and heatedly broke the news. One of the staffers grimaced and said, holy shit, the traders hadn't seen a move like that ever. True, it had happened in 1986 and again in 1992, but long-term's models didn't go back that far. This makes no sense to me because that wasn't that far away from 1998. As far as long-term knew, it was a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence, a practical impossibility, and one for which the fund was totally unprepared. So at this point, long-term is basically a sinking ship. They are losing money hand over fist even quicker than they ever anticipated. Long-term, which had calculated with such mathematical certainty that it was unlikely to lose more than $35 million on any single day, had just dropped $553 million, 15% of its capital, on that one Friday in August. It had started the year with $4.67 billion. Suddenly, it was down to $2.9 billion. Since the end of April, it had lost more than a third of its equity. So as expected during this time, the firm starts considering maybe we have to start selling some of our positions. They've lost now a third of their equity in the past roughly four or five months. So they start thinking, maybe we should start selling our positions like our merger arbitrage positions, the ones that are not as central to our thesis. But yet they go out to the market and they find that liquidity has suddenly dried up. There are simply no buyers for them to sell to. Disturbingly, the trader said 
there was no demand for long-term trades, despite their seeming soundness. The Tokyo Partners reported a similar story. There simply weren't any buyers. Despite the Bollywood growth in derivatives, there was no liquidity in credit markets. There never is when everyone wants out at the same time. This is the core fear and panic of financial bubbles. There never is when everyone wants out at the same time. This is what the models had missed. When losses mount, leverage investors such as long-term are forced to sell lest their losses overwhelm them. When a firm has to sell in a market without buyers, prices run to extremes beyond the bell curve. So what do we know? Long-term is in this very tough position. They are being forced to sell because they're losing money so quickly and they have all that leverage burden. And thus, they are dependent on the kindness of strangers. They even went to the man who said that line himself, Warren Buffett, to try to get some capital and sell some of their positions to, but Buffett actually turned them down. So at this point in long-term's history, they are fully dependent on the kindness of strangers. And that is a place that we never want to be in. As Lewinstein says, Meriwether was running out of friends. When you need money, Wall Street is a heartless place. So at this point, in the end of August 1998, they were in really deep trouble. They needed some liquidity. They had too much leverage. They were looking out, searching for buyers to buy their illiquid securities, and all the buyers are gone. They're totally dependent on the kindness of strangers, and no strangers are actually saving them. So this was really that final disaster period for long-term capital management. The bond market had effectively closed. No one could trade out of anything or not without suffering horrendous losses. It was as if a bomb had hit. Traders looked at their screens and the screens stared blankly back. Buyers were simply nowhere to be found. With no buyers there to save them and their asset values suddenly dropping pretty quickly, that means that long-term was stuck holding the bag. They had an increasingly leveraged bag. At this point, it was now at 55 times leverage. So they had $2.28 billion of equity still, but they had $125 billion in assets, 55 times leverage. So that is practically saying a small drop, like a 2% drop in the value of your assets means that the equity is worthless. And this put the firm in the worst position possible. As Lowenstein would say, the frightful size of its positions put the partners in a terrible bind. If they sold even a tiny fraction of a big position, say of swaps, it would send the price plummeting and reduce the value of all the rest. All the other banks who had copied long-term's strategy earlier, these bond arbitrage convergence strategies, they are now watching closely what long-term capital management is going to do. If they see that 
long-term start selling, even like they said, those small pieces of a position, then the other banks, the other firms that copy the strategy, they will start to get scared and they will act quickly and they will sell their own positions. So in many ways, long-term couldn't even sell. Not only are there no buyers, but long-term didn't want to sell these positions because they would only further accelerate this collapse. According to the young professors, Wall Street firms began to get out in front of the fund's positions. If a trader elsewhere knew long-term capital owned a lot of interest rate swap, for instance, he sold interest rate swaps and further weakened long-term's hand. The idea was that if you put enough pressure on long-term capital, long-term capital would be forced to sell in a panic and you would reap the profits. And even if long-term didn't break, the mere rumor that it had problems might lead to a windfall for you. So here we were seeing that the vultures had come to feed on their carcass. That was a quote that was said during the Liar's Ball episode with Harry Macklow. We saw with both Zeckendorf and Harry Macklow, when they were excessively over-levered and they were struggling, they could barely pay their loan payments, everyone around them saw that weakness. That is when the people around them started to realize, if we just stop and let them fail themselves, then we could buy up all these deals at a huge bargain. This is what they said about Macklow, the vultures came to feed on his carcass. And now we're seeing with long-term capital management, the vultures are coming to feed on their carcass. If they know there's a trade that long-term is long gone, then all the other firms will go short on it or vice versa. So they are seeing that anything long-term is betting on, if the rest of the market starts betting on the opposite, then that will force long-term's position to become even weaker and that may lead to an even sooner forced sale. So another big takeaway that I gained during this downfall period was that all the correlations had gone to one. And what that means is that in the past, when they thought they are diversifying their assets, maybe across markets or emerging markets, across different asset classes, well, in reality, in a financial panic, all of these assets are equally correlated. So they thought everything is diverse and they thought that if one of their trades, let's say, loses money, goes to zero, whatever the situation may be, the rest of their portfolio will be fine. They didn't take into account that the psychology of investing, many people follow each other in good times and in bad. Lowenstein would say the correlations had gone to one. Every role was turning up snake eyes. The mathematicians had not foreseen this. Random markets, they had thought, would lead to standard distributions, to a normal pattern of black sheep and white sheep, heads and tails, and jacks and deuces, not to staggering losses in every trade, day after day after day. So in this example, they may have thought that with a Russian ruble crisis, their Russian ruble investments may suffer, but the rest of their portfolio is still going to hold steady, still going to be strong. 
What they didn't anticipate was that people would start selling maybe all the other emerging assets, or they may start transitioning from other asset classes into the simple US Treasury government bonds. So suddenly, correlations had gone to one. Everyone is following each other. There's that flight to quality. Everyone is going to US Treasuries, the safest asset. And we saw that the whole portfolio for long term was suffering at the same time. All that diversification that they thought that they had was not actually there to protect them. Friedheim watched in horror as the value of his bonds sank beneath the value of the loans against them. Since many of his bonds were unsaleable, Friedheim sold other credits. Brazil, Turkey, Thailand, U.S. mortgage securities, high-yield bonds. It didn't matter what he sold. The point was he had to sell something. Correlations had gone to zero. So over the next couple weeks, long-term continues to bleed money and things don't get any better for them. They actually start getting a group of banks who try to work together and basically save them because we know the banks are the ones that hold the other end of those transactions, but we're starting to see things are getting dangerously tight. Long-term's total loss on Monday was $553 million, coincidentally equal to its loss of a month before. So this is another $553 million losing day. In percentage terms, this Monday's loss was far worse. It ate through a third of long-term's equity, leaving it with just under a billion dollars. And the fund still had more than a hundred billion in assets. Thus, even omitting derivatives, its leverage was greater than a hundred to one, a fantastic figure in the annals of investment. Now, if long-term lost even a mere 1% more, it would be wiped out. So as a last-ditch effort, long-term again went to Warren Buffett and asked him if he would be willing to buy out their entire portfolio. And the deal ended up not going through, so they had to be saved by a group of banks. The Fed had to put together 14 different big banks working together. These are competitors, as we know. So these 14 banks had to work together last minute, raise $3.65 billion to save and really stabilize long-term capital management. And all these banks, I mean, they did it. Their incentive was they were truly worried about the systematic risk. Long-term owned like $100 billion of assets, and some even say that they had exposure to a trillion dollars of assets in the form of derivative contracts as well. So they were really afraid what that type of selling would have an impact on the rest of the market. So many of these banks, they owned other sides of the trades, and obviously they're very incentivized for the market to do well. They were willing to step in and save long-term capital management. Like I've said throughout this episode, I thought this was one of those ultimate stories on a rise and fall of excess. 
Through April 1998, the value of a dollar invested in long-term quadrupled to $4.11. By the time of the bailout, only five months later, precisely 33 cents of that total remained. After deducting the partner's fees, the results were even sorrier. Each invested dollar, having grown to $2.85, shrank to a meager 23 cents. In net terms, the greatest fund ever, surely the one with the highest IQs, had lost 77% of its capital, while the ordinary stock market investor had been more than doubling his money. My favorite what not to do lessons across this episode were ignoring the tail risk, that 100-year flood mentality, completely taking a blind eye to the black swan events, taking on excessive leverage, 20 to 30 times leverage, which we know one black swan event could topple you over, believing too much in precision in their models, and really that has to do with believing in the efficient market hypothesis, in betting on that with precision, and then building in no margin of safety, not being willing to listen to all the people around you who are telling you, hey, you may be over-levered, or this trade doesn't sound like it may work out, or it may take some time to work out, why are you putting a gun to your head with the leverage? Well, they had so much hubris and they had so much overconfidence that they weren't simply willing to listen to anyone who told them otherwise. They felt like they could do no wrong. And then at the end, we saw that as they were taking the nosedive, as the firm was struggling, well, suddenly liquidity is dried up. There's no buyers available and you are dependent on the kindness of strangers. That is the classic lesson that we see again and again in these over-levered crises. The investor who is highly leveraged and illiquid is playing Russian roulette, for he must be right about the market, not merely at the end, but every single day. One wrong day, and he is out of business. Long-term was so self-certain as to believe that the markets would never, not even for a wild swing some August and September, stray so far from its predictions. So that wraps up the remarkable book, When Genius Failed. I highly, highly, highly recommend it. I think it's one of the best books I've read in this what not to do category. There are so many great lessons for us to invert in our own investing in business lives. I hope you learned a lot from this episode. Please share it with a friend if you enjoyed it. That would be amazing. And thank you again for listening.